This episode of the Holly Field Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by Scratch Labs. To save 20% on your Scratch Labs purchase, visit the link in the show notes and use code HOLLY20, that's H-O-L-L-E-Y-2-0, at checkout. Hello, my friends. My name is Holly Samuel, and welcome to the Holly Field Nutrition Podcast. I am your podcast host today, and we are continuing our supplement myth-busting series that you guys have told me just such great feedback about so far. So if you haven't checked out the previous two episodes to kick off the series already on collagen and greens powders, make sure you go check that out. Today's episode um, was not one that I had planned, honestly, to do this early in the series. I had planned to do this episode later in the series, um, but then, but then we got a new research study that was released, and I think a CNN article, a New York Times article about the study were released. So I was getting so many questions <laughs> um, about these particular. Uh, supplements or ingredients, if you will. So today, instead of talking about the other things I plan to talk about, we're going to dive into stevia and artificial sweeteners. Um, I'm coupling a lot of different potential ingredients and substances into this episode. It is not going to be a short episode. Um, We are going to get into the weeds. So If you want to come into the weeds with me and dive into some research, some um, scholarly information about these things um, so that you can see how clear as mud it is for someone who is a nutrition professional, uh, come along with me. If you really hate going into the weeds, um, I mean, the summary here is that everything is okay in moderation, but having a lot of these in our diet may not be a great thing and that we need to be aware of them in the ingredients list of literally everything on the market to make sure that our load is staying reasonable each day. So if you're not a weeds person, there you go. You're done with the episode. (laughs) But if you want to know the why and the what and the how and and the everything in between like me, Let's dive on in to this episode. So let's first define what I mean by an artificial sweetener. Um, And a bigger term that we have for these now are called non-nutritive sweeteners. And that kind of encompasses artificial sweeteners and other low or zero calorie sweeteners that may be um, naturally derived like stevia, monk fruit, or low hanguo, um, or sugar alcohols. So I kind of wanted to make sure I touched on that uh, definition as well. So what I'm talking about, a non-nutritive sweetener, basically these things are so much sweeter than sugar, Um, like table sugar is basically kind of used as our baseline um, for sweetness, because when we think of sweet things, don't most of us think of like table sugar, maybe honey, maybe maple syrup, but I mean, you know, you kind of catch my drift. So non-nutritive sweeteners are so much sweeter than sugar that they can be added to food in very small amounts that basically are low or zero calorie. Um, For example, stevia is 200 to 400 times sweeter than sugar. Um, So it can be added to foods in a very low amount and therefore be considered, you know, low or zero calorie and take away from the carbohydrate and calorie content overall of the food, which is 
the main appeal of companies using non-nutritive sweeteners in their products is to typically reduce calories and reduce added sugar. Now that we have a new Nutrition Facts panel of 2020, if you look at it, um, under total carbohydrate, you'll typically see dietary fiber, total sugar, and added sugars. Um, so now that we can kind of tell how much added sugar is in a product, which it's kind of meant to call out things that have a lot of naturally occurring sugar versus added sugar. And from my dietitian perspective, eh, it, it's helpful, but sometimes it's harmful, right? Whenever we're looking at a label and trying to determine the health status of a food, like sometimes we don't care if there's added sugar in a product. Like for example, Scratch Labs, who sponsors this episode, there's added sugar in their product. That's the whole point of it being a sports nutrition drink, right? Um, versus if we had something like tomato sauce, you know, and there's a bunch of added sugar in the tomato sauce, we might kind of say, do we really need there to be added sugar in there? You know, maybe we do and maybe we don't. So that's kind of where um, these artificial, artificial or non-nutritive sweeteners have come in is to essentially be a way for companies to lower the added sugar in the product without making it taste terrible, <laughs> right? Because if we take away all the sugar or carbohydrates, is probably not going to taste super good. So we have to add something back in that is sweet, kind of like sugar, um, that can basically improve the flavor profile. And that's where sometimes two food scientists are really good at figuring out what's going to be the most palatable um, or pleasing to our taste buds when they are developing food. So sometimes you might see some of these non-nutritive sweeteners even mixed together, some of them mixed together with sugar, although the sugar is reduced in order to produce a product that tastes good. Um, we saw a very similar phenomenon like this back in the 90s with the low fat craze. If you take the fat out of a product that's supposed to have fat in it, fat's something that makes the product super palatable. Fat tastes really good. It's got a lot of calories in it compared to carbohydrates and protein. So if companies were taking out the fat, a lot of the times they had to either add in a lot more carbohydrates to make it taste okay and to bind it together and emulsify or they had to add in things like Olestra, um, which was an additive to low-fat products that cause obscene GI issues. And I don't believe is on the market anymore, not at least in its original form, but it's probably still out there if you look up like low-fat Pringles or something like that. Um, so whenever we try to alter or adulterate is a better word, I think, a food that is supposed to contain these things in its natural state, um, we typically have to add something back in and a lot of the times the goal is to add something back in that is as low calorie as possible because we're obsessed with diets in this country in order to preserve the flavor. So hopefully that kind of helps give some background as to what I mean by non-nutritive sweeteners and like why they're even used and where they came from. So just to kind of go over the list, the laundry list of some of these non-nutritive sweeteners that we are going to covered today um, in more depth for some than others because they're more popular, but we're going to cover stevia, monk fruit extract, um, sugar alcohols such as allulose, erythritol, and sorbitol. Um, the most recent study that keeps coming up and brought to my attention as a question was primarily on erythritol. Um, we're also going to talk about um, asulfame potassium or ACE-K, saccharin, sucralose, um, ova sweet, aspartame, neotame, um, 
and admin team. So those are going to be the main ones. And if you're like, I don't really know what you're talking about. I haven't really heard of a lot of those. You probably have. And we'll get into some of their brand and code names um, that you can look for on ingredients lists or if you're just in the store trying to be an educated consumer. <laughs> so when it comes to these non-nutritive sweeteners, like a lot of... Um, additives in our food supply, not so much supplements, but in like the actual food supply. So if we're talking about, you know, like Halo Top or a granola bar, that kind of thing, something that's a bit more, a bit more processed. Um, there are certain ingredients that are okay to add that the FDA and the USDA have approved of. And there's certain ingredients that are okay to add um, in certain doses. So what we often say in food science, and if you are a registered dietitian, or if you're currently a dietetic student, you know, you've taken food science classes, because that's a part of our training, we have to know, basically how to feed someone through a tube in the ICU. And we also have to understand what basically composes the quality of a good muffin. Um, it's kind of a crazy field. The RD exam is crazy. There is just such a big range of things we have to know that kind of are hilarious. So anyway, in food science, um, you'll know that the dose makes the poison is something that we are taught in food science and in most like epidemiology classes as well. So like anything, yeah, if there are certain ingredients or just naturally occurring chemicals, minerals, carcinogens in our environment. Um, you know, some of them are going to be more harmful than others. And some of them are going to be totally fine and benign for us to have, as long as we're having like a reasonable dose, we're not like overdosing on it, right? Because just like I've said on this podcast, too much of anything is not a good thing, even if it is a good thing. Like even if we have too much broccoli, like that can result in upset stomach, GI symptoms, gas, being sad that you're just eating broccoli. <laughs> um, just like if we have too many cupcakes, right? Like too much of anything can be a bad thing. And that's the same for non-nutritive sweeteners. So what the FDA has done for us, since the FDA does regulate our food supply, unlike the supplement industry, does not regulate the supplement industry, which is what you've learned on previous episodes of this series. But what they give to these types of ingredients like non-nutritive sweeteners is called a GRASS statement, which stands for, it's an acronym, it stands for generally recognized as safe. And a lot of the times they will give certain doses that are under the parameters of what is safe for this particular substance. There's a ton of studies and research having to be reviewed in order to get this grass statement label. Um, and they do update research dosaging and whatnot as well. It's probably not as quick moving or thorough as some of us would like it to be, but they do their best. It's a really big country. It's hard to regulate everything in this country. Um, so Basically, what I'm going to talk about with all of these different non-nutritive sweeteners is I'm going to cover the sweetener. I'm going to cover where it comes from, um, how much sweeter it is than sugar or in comparison to sugar, and how much we are allowed to have per day um, based off of the graph statement that is a summary of explanation of how much we're allowed to have in a day that is based off of a 132 pound person. Um, and they give it to you on the FDA website in packets per day. So if you think of like those tabletop packets of sugar or like Splenda or something like that, I think that's just like an easier visual to talk 
to you guys about on a podcast than like grams <laughs> or milligrams. Um, so that is what I'm going to be talking about when I cover all of these different sweeteners. Um, so obviously you're not all 132 pound people. So if you are a larger person, you could probably have a little bit more than what I talk about because you are slightly larger and the dosing is by weight. Um, if you are a smaller person, like a child, or if you are pregnant um, and you're just in a different category of person um, while you're pregnant or breastfeeding, um, some of these things you might actually want to have less of or avoid completely. And I'll try to state any medication reactions, supplement reactions, pregnancy concerns as I go. But to be honest, a lot of it's clear as mud. So <laughs> bear with me. So let's start with the big guns. Stevia, which you may have also recognized on a food label as stevia glycosides or rebuside A. Those are kind of all different names for stevia. A brand of stevia is stevia in the raw or Truvia is another one. Stevia is derived from a plant from the ragweed family. So if you are um, allergic to ragweed, it may not be a bad idea to reduce or eliminate your consumption of stevia, which to your credit is quite hard to do these days. It's in everything. <laughs> um, stevia is 200 to 400 times sweeter than sugar, like I mentioned before, and about nine tabletop packets per day, again, for that 132 pound person is kind of the grass dosage, generally recognized as safe dosage, um, which as we go through more uh, sweeteners, you're going to learn that the, that's actually quite a low dose. Um, so it's pretty easy these days to overdo it on stevia, in my opinion, and go above that dose because it's in everything. It's in toothpaste, it's in yogurt, it's in drinks, protein powders, sports nutrition products, um, ice cream, bars, cereal, it's in everything. <laughs> so um, in rats, so a lot of our research on non-nutritive sweeteners has not been done on humans, um, especially long-term research and very robust studies. Um, so I want to talk about a little bit about the research on these, but I'll kind of put a caveat as to whether or not it was a rat-based study, an in vitro-based um, study that, again, is not in humans or human-based study. So in rats, stevia has been shown to have anti-glycemic effects, meaning it's very good for blood sugar. It's also been shown to produce more bacteria in the gut associated with metabolic issues such as type 2 diabetes, where we have trouble regulating blood sugar. <laughs> so very contradictive findings there. A lot of the time stevia is used because it is derived from plants. So it can be called natural. So you can see on the label that this is naturally sweetened, which technically if it's sugar sweetened, it's also naturally sweetened. <laughs> so it's kind of a marketing gimmick. Um, but it kind of gives more of a health vibe to the consumer if they're able to say naturally sweetened. And a lot of the times it is added to reduce the sugar content in the hopes to improve glycemic control and effects of the food. So contradictive studies there in rats. It's also been shown to alter the microbiome unfavorably in rats. It has also been shown to be safe <laughs> in general in rats. Um, stevia is metabolized by the gut microbiota and microbial enzymes in the gut to break down 
the steviol glycosides into steviol, which can then be absorbed by the host. So stevia is metabolized by the gut bacteria. That's not true for some other non-nutritive sweeteners. So that's why it has been studied in terms of its effects on the gut so much, because we're wondering, hey, is it okay that these like bacteria are metabolizing this all the time? Is that good for them? Is it killing them? Is it changing them? Because as we know, from previous podcast episodes. And if you guys follow me on social media, gut health is total health. And if we're kind of screwing up our gut health based off of what we're putting into our bodies, that can absolutely cause other issues. Um, for in vitro studies, stevia, so this means basically in a petri dish, um, stevia basically was tested on two gram negative pathogens in one study, such as E. coli and salmonella. It was also tested on two gram positive pathogens, such as Staph aureus and Listeria, and two probiotics that are beneficial gut bacteria, which were Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus plantarium. And essentially, the probiotics couldn't really use stevia as a substrate, so they didn't ferment it or metabolize it very well, um, but it didn't kill them. And in rats, um, basically some studies have been shown um, that adequate prebiotic fiber consumption and stevia consumption can reduce any potential adverse effects. So lots of big words. <laughs> so basically what this study showed is that it the stevia may not kill these bacteria. And again, we're studying it in a Petri dish, not in an actual host or human. Um, you know, it may not kill these probiotics and we might improve um, the status of that even more if we consume it with adequate fiber intake, um, because that is really helpful for the probiotics. So essentially, even if we are kind of like putting a dink and a chink in their armor in terms of their bacterial health, we can then give them some food to eat like prebiotic fiber to nurse them back to health. So that's probably the theory behind why that might be the case. And in those other pathogens that were studied in the Petri dish, um, essentially there wasn't, there wasn't a huge significant outcome. There was overgrowth for some of them, and then there was undergrowth of others. So stevia is thought to have antimicrobial effects because of some of these Petri dish studies, um, which can decrease certain species um, in our gut. But again, that's, that's, via Petri dish. So we're just extrapolating that this could also happen in our gut because of the terpenes that are present in the stevia plant. Um, and the terpenes are basically constituents or factors in stevia and other plant compounds that may have antimicrobial or other beneficial effects. We also talked a little bit about terpenes way back in the CBD episode with my colleague, Aaron Kenny, who is a holistic cannabis practitioner. What I tell people about stevia is that it's an everything. Um, it is one of the most used non-nutritive sweeteners these days because it is thought to be safe and because it tastes okay <laughs> and because it is plant-derived and thought to be more natural. However, a very low dose is safe. Nine packets per day, when you think about it, is not that much. Um, so it is something where if we're starting to see it in multiple things that we're having every day, that may not be the best. If we're having it in like one thing per day, like our protein powder, or it's in like one food item that we have per day, you know, that's a way to lighten the load. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. But I always like to tell people that stevia is a plant, which means it is subjected to things that other plants are also subjected to, like pesticides and runoff. So it's also helpful 
to look for organic certifications of stevia, which may promise that the pesticide use is reduced um, and that it could be a higher quality um, plant. But again, that's not super guaranteed. So that's kind of the spiel on stevia. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> so officially, it is generally recognized as safe. It is quite a bit sweeter than sugar. It is in the ragweed family. So if you're allergic to ragweed, it might be best to avoid stevia. It is safe for the 132 pound person in nine packets a day or less. Um, it is thought to be safe in pregnancy, but again, we just don't know that much about it. So let's move on to our next non-nutritive sweetener. So I'll briefly cover OvaSweet, which is something that is added to food products in addition to stevia to essentially um, cut out the aftertaste of stevia. So if you've had stevia before, you kind of know that sometimes there's an aftertaste. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, but that's definitely something that turns a lot of people off from stevia. So OvaSweet was patented to reduce the aftertaste of stevia as an additive to food. Um, and one thing to note too is that while artificial sweeteners are generally recognized as safe to use in food products and the FDA requires them to be put on the food label. Um, we don't have to know, like they don't have to disclose how much of it is in the food. You know, it has to be under obviously the general recognized as safe uh, dosage, but we don't know exactly how much is in the food, which is why you might taste some things with like stevia in them and be like, wow, this tastes terrible. Um, or it just tastes really overpoweringly sweet. And you might taste something else with stevia in it and kind of think, oh, like I barely even kind of noticed that it's in there. I didn't even know stevia was used in this product. So typically, if that's the case, it could be because they're using different strains of stevia. Um, strains maybe isn't the right word, but different stevia products um, or different dosages of stevia. So something to consider. So now let's move on to erythritol. So erythritol is a sugar alcohol which basically means um, that it is derived from sugar and a lot of the carbohydrates and carbons are um, basically altered to produce something that is lower in calories and carbohydrates. So we've got a lot of sugar alcohols. I'm only really going to cover uh, erythritol in depth today, but we also have xylitol, which is often used in toothpaste because of its antimicrobial effects and um, it's not you know, sugar-based, so it's good for your teeth. We also have sorbitol, um, which is in a lot of foods that are labeled sugar-free because it does have a very similar flavor profile to sugar. Uh, however, sorbitol and a lot of sugar alcohols in general, so a lot of the sugar alcohols tend to end in OL, um, erythritol, xylitol, sorbitol. Um, so <laughs> molitol is another one. So Sorbitol, um, all of them have laxative effects, but sorbitol can basically be the, the most extreme. If you are bored and you want a really good laugh, go to Amazon and look up sugar-free gummy bears and read the review section of sugar-free gummy bears. You will get all the poop stories. They're hilarious. Um, not that I'm laughing at other people's demise, but they put, the, they put them out there. So... <laughs> Anyway, um, if you see sorbitol in a product and you're a runner, don't eat it. You're probably going to be pooping your pants on your run. Let's go back to erythritol. So erythritol is naturally occurring in fruits and vegetables in small amounts. Um, 
but typically it's used in about a thousand times higher dosages and processed foods as an added ingredient. Um, we don't really have a grass dosage for erythritol. We're not sure how much is safe and how much is not safe. What's um, starting to be narrowed down is the dosage based off of some new studies, one of which we will cover today because it is the new study that got everyone terrified to have erythritol. Um, erythritol is about 70% as sweet as sugar. So it's actually not as sweet as sugar, but it is lower in calories. So they can add it um, in, a, in addition to or in place of sugar and get a similar flavor profile. And it does have less laxative effects than other sugar alcohols, which is why it's often used in a lot of low carb products on the market these days. So essentially erythritol is very poorly metabolized by humans and it is excreted in our urine. Um, and it's been shown to have benefits in short-term animal studies and associated with belly fat gain in type two diabetes and other human studies. <laughs> so again, clear as mud. The research is clear as mud up to this state. But I want to cover the new study um, because a lot of people have been asking me about the new study. And it was coupled, um, erythritol was coupled with stevia in some of the articles that I read by like CNN or New York Times on this new study summarizing it. But this is typically because stevia is also found in some of the products that they were discussing. Um, but typically, Stevia and erythritol will be labeled separately on the label. Um, and the study that they are talking about primarily focuses on erythritol's effects. The study that is titled The Artificial Sweetener Erythritol and Cardiovascular Event Risk by Marco Witkowski et al. that was published in January of 2023, basically looked at um, long-term and a large population of humans, <laughs> um, which is helpful because we don't have a lot of non-nutritive sweetener studies on humans, let alone anything really long-term. I wanna point out some strengths of the study um, and also some weaknesses, because I think it's very easy for um, the public, especially if you just don't have a lot of experience reading peer-reviewed research, to say, oh, a study found this, so therefore I must kind of pay attention and adopt it you know, verbatim into my lifestyle. Um, <laughs> it's just not that simple. We kind of want to see, okay, what population have they done the study on? Does that, you know, apply to me? Am I, do I identify with that population? Um, was it long-term? Was it short-term? What were the methods of the researchers? You know, how is this applicable to real life? Um, none of us are lab rats that just exist in a vacuum that people can study perfectly. So, with nutrition studies, this is especially the case because a lot of the times people don't adhere to specific diets or it's not ethical to give people huge doses of certain things that could be harmful. Um, that would just never get approved by the IRB for the person to even go through with the research study. Um, so a lot of the times the gold standard, um, you know, uh, randomized con control trial, uh, double blind randomized control trial, typically is short term because we can't like tell people that they have to, you know, consume a bunch of erythritol every day for like 10 years. <laughs> like they're just, that's just not safe for anyone. And they're probably not going to do it perfectly. So they're going to drop out or you're not going to have very good data. So a lot of the times it's short term. So just to kind of point out, when I read a study as a practitioner who is trained to read studies, I'm, you know, going in with a very skeptical eye, I want to see 
the methods and the population they studied and the interventions they made and the outcomes. And typically the researchers themselves also have to identify strengths and weaknesses and any conflicts of interest with their study as well. So we read it in depth. Who did they study? Typically, um, what I saw was that mostly the population they studied um, was about 60 to 70 percent male um, and the rest female. And they were about 55 to 81 years in age on average. So a bit of an older, um, mostly male population. They didn't really account for physical activity levels. Um, and there were 1,157 participants. So um, that's, you know, pretty good population size. But I would say for my audience, who are primarily female endurance athletes, meh, this may or may not apply to you, <laughs> right off the bat, because that's just not who we're studying. They were about 13 to 17% um, smokers. Um, they also tended to have pretty poor cholesterol numbers from blood work. Their LDL or bad cholesterol was in the high 90s and their HDL, which is their good cholesterol, was in the 30s and 40s, which is below optimized um, for good cholesterol and kind of on the higher end of normal um, for bad cholesterol. So they were already predisposed to cardiovascular disease. Um, and again, the population that I'm speaking to <laughs> and that I know I work with because I can see um, my population data from this podcast and from Instagram, and I know who I work with, and I have data on blood work of people's blood work that I review. I know that this isn't them. <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of you are probably in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. I probably got some people in their 50s and 60s, but I know most of you are in your 20s and 30s. I know most of you, about 80% of you are, are identifying as female, um, and the rest are male or non-binary identifying. I know that you care about running. You're listening to this podcast. So I haven't directly asked you this, but I'm assuming most of you run, and most of you are pretty active compared to the average population. I'm assuming less than 17% of you smoke, but I don't have data to prove that. And from my inside tracker data on people I've reviewed blood work with, cholesterol numbers honestly tend to be very good in endurance athletes. Um, some of this is luck of the draw in terms of genetics, and some of this is lifestyle related. So again, right off the bat, I'm kind of like, okay, I see how this could maybe apply to the general population, but you know, kind of raising an eyebrow in terms of how it applies to my population. So essentially their methods, um, about 1,100 participants were in an untargeted metabolomics analysis um, that were performed on plasma samples of these individuals undergoing elective cardiac catheterization. They were monitored for cardiac events for three years after. So this kind of explains the population a little bit more. They were already undergoing treatment for um, cardiac catheterization. So they're already kind of struggling with their heart health and with cardiovascular disease. Um, I want to note that diet was not controlled for. So <laughs> they didn't really make these people adhere to a specific diet or with a specific holistic dietary intervention, which makes sense because three years is a long time, <laughs> right? Um, but that's something to note, like are some of the adverse cardiovascular effects that we're seeing because of the erythritol or is it because of the rest of their diet, their genetics? You know, there's a lot that goes into this. So that was something that was a huge red flag to me when we're talking about a nutrition study. I also would like to point out that there was a conflict of interest mentioned. Um, the author does get paid for inventions and discoveries related to cardiovascular diagnostics for Cleveland Heart Lab. Now, conflicts of interest 
are not inherently bad. <laughs> um, I would say this author probably has very good intentions, even though they do get paid to discover things linked to cardiovascular issues. So the study did find a correlation between higher doses of erythritol and cardiovascular outcomes that were poor. And this person gets paid to find that. So there's that, but also like this person's trying to do good for the world by improving people's prognoses with heart disease. So, you know, it's good to note the conflict of interest, but that one doesn't, you know, it doesn't concern me too much, but it is still really good to pay attention to it. If it was like a study on erythritol that was funded by an erythritol company that found that erythritol was the best thing for us ever, I'd be, you know, I'd be a little bit more skeptical. So I wanted to point that out as well. They used 30 grams of erythritol in the study. Um, it was in a kind of separate intervention piece of the study where 30 grams of erythritol was given to people and then their blood levels of erythritol were absorbed. And essentially what was found was that these people had increased cardiac events associated with higher levels of erythritol in their blood. And then they were able to extrapolate that more erythritol in the diet equals more erythritol in the blood. So more erythritol in the blood probably means these people were consuming more erythritol in their diet. And that could be why they have correlated a higher um, cardiovascular incident outcome. So you see how <laughs> um, it's interesting, right? It's an interesting correlation. It's definitely not causation. This was not a randomized control trial, placebo, um, double blind, anything like that. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say that the erythritol itself is what caused the cardiac outcomes. Um, and they used 30 grams of erythritol because they found that that is what a person may typically consume when they are consuming erythritol and how they got there is because if we look at some high erythritol foods like halo top or like diet ice creams or keto products, there's about 20 to 30 grams of erythritol in the entire thing. If you eat a pint of Halo Top, which is encouraged by Halo Top, that's kind of the point of Halo Top, right? You can buy the whole pint and eat the whole thing, but it's low calorie. It's because of the erythritol and the added fiber. That's why it's low calorie. There's about 24 grams of sugar alcohols, aka erythritol, present in Halo Top. We are encouraged to eat the whole pint by the company, because it is a diet company that is looking to give you more food for less calories. As a dietitian, do I recommend people eat Halo Top to begin with, let alone the whole pint? No, <laughs> no, I don't. So in terms of my practical application of this study to people I work with, I'm already telling people, hey, that's kind of a large dose of erythritol and sugar alcohols and added fiber to be consuming in one sitting that's definitely going to give you some GI issues, let alone we're not even digging into the relationship with food peace, right? Of why someone's eating a pint of Halo Top instead of enjoying maybe a reasonable amount of regular ice cream. Um, because a lot of the times these diet products do encourage a person eating a large volume um, and basically tuning out of their hunger and fullness cues. So <laughs> to kind of summarize this study, it's it's interesting, but for me, it doesn't change any of my opinions. You know, I think erythritol is okay to have in moderation. I think if we're having a lot of it in a day, there's kind of a bigger functional and possibly relationship with food situation happening that we, you know, should address anyway. 
So now I want to talk about kind of the other natural sweetener that's on this list, which is monk fruit or lohan guo, which I think is how you say it. Um, but essentially, this um, is about 100 to 250 times sweeter um, than sugar. It comes from the swingle fruit from China. It's been used for a very long time in China and more recently in the US. Um, the safety amount and dose has not been established, but it does have a grass statement. We don't know too much about its effects in terms of research. We have very mixed research, a lot of um, outcomes suggesting it is safe um, in, again, lab rats. And um, a company you might have heard of that packages monk fruit is called Nectress. Um, so again, not too much information on monk fruit, but I wanted to make sure I covered that since I know it's in a lot of products and it is touted as natural. So again, it falls into the same category as stevia where it's a plant. It means it's basically subject to things all plants are subject to, pesticides, runoff, soil content, etc. So that's something to think about. Now let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor before carrying on with the rest of our non-nutritive sweeteners. Let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor today, which is Scratch Labs. I love Scratch Labs. I have been using their hydration and fueling products for several years. They have just always sat really well with me and I like the taste and there's just, it's pretty much that simple. They fueled a lot of PRs. Now, if you are new to Scratch Labs, this company was started by Dr. Alan Lim and Ian McGregor, who were exercise physiologists and pro cyclists. Um, and Scratch Labs basically is here to help all athletes perform better with sports nutrition that is simple, delicious, based on science, and uses ingredients that make sense. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, for example, Scratch uses real cane sugar because they are fueling real athletes. Sugar, along with sodium, as we know, speeds the transport of water into the body, lowering the risk of GI distress, which is why if you do have GI distress on your long runs, especially, I always ask about hydration strategy because dehydration or just improper hydration can be one of the biggest indicators of GI distress in endurance athletes. Sugar is also critical to basically maintaining blood sugar levels for better performance during long runs. We know that a lot of carbohydrates are needed to fuel us for performing at higher intensities. For example, if we're trying to race a marathon, um, carbohydrates are a necessary part of our fuel plan. So getting some in our sports drink can basically help us make ends meet in addition to keeping us well hydrated. So I love that Scratch Labs uses ingredients that like actually make sense for endurance athletes. Um, it's just really great. And they have other products too, besides just hydration products. They've got a super carb fuel product. They've got bars, sports chews, recovery powders, and so much more. I just love all of their products so much. And I know you will too. So if you're looking for something that tastes good, but isn't super overpowering, lots of flavor options, ingredients that sit well and make sense, and you want to save 20% off on your purchase, use code HOLLY20. That's H-O-L-L-E-Y to zero at checkout using the link in the show notes to save 20% off of your Scratch Labs purchase. Now let's get back to today's episode. All right, now that we've covered some of the more common sweeteners these days because they can be called natural, um, so they have kind of taken over the world, <laughs> 
Now let's get into some of the artificial sweeteners that still fall under the non-nutritive sweetener category. We're kind of going to do these a little bit more rapid fire. So acesulfame potassium or ACE-K, um, you may have recognized this as brands um, like Sweet One or Sunnet. And essentially it's about 200 times sweeter than sugar, about 23 packets per day, again, for that 132 pound person. And we're talking about like diner table packets, um, are generally recognized as safe in terms of dosage. And some common things um, that I've seen in the sports nutrition world that ACE-K is an ingredient for um, are like core power, protein shakes, and fair life products, um, dairy products. So again, ACE-K, we don't know a ton about it. We know that it's generally recognized as safe. Again, there's some research that shows that it is linked to gut health changes and potentially cancer um, associations, but not causation. And a lot of that is in uh, rat studies or in vitro and not a ton of human population studies that have super concerning findings. So probably safe in small amounts, um, definitely a lot sweeter than sugar. So some people may or may not like that, um, but that's good to kind of note our next one is aspartame, which you may have heard um, because it's the brand Equal. So it's the blue packet on the table. It's also about 200 times sweeter than sugar. About 75 packets per day is generally recognized as safe. So again, we're comparing this to Stevia's nine packets per day. And so far we got a 23 and a 75 for some of our other artificial sweeteners. So again, Natural, not always better, um, but aspartame basically is a very common ingredient in like diet soda. And there is an issue that I want to bring attention to in terms of aspartame. If you do struggle with PKU, um, that is a basically metabolic disorder where you lack the gene to break down phenylalanine, which is an amino acid that is found in aspartame then you need to avoid aspartame. You need to check labels um, and essentially avoid it because your body cannot metabolize it. Um, so if it does build up in your bloodstream, that can become toxic and have other negative outcomes. So that's always something I like to share that I think I learned in like seventh grade. <laughs> um, so this is way back even before my dietetics career. So maybe you guys even know about that already. Um, aspartame has been around for a very long time because diet soda has been around for decades now. Our next really big heavy hitter um, that you're probably familiar with is sucralose, um, otherwise known as Splenda. Um, sucralose is a sucrose, which is sugar and chlorine molecule fused together. Um, it is found in diet sodas. It's also found in core power and fair life products, um, protein powders for sure quest products. Um, so sucralose Splenda is in a lot of things. Um, it was kind of one of the first like artificial sweeteners to go to market in a really big way. Um, so that's why it's everywhere. <laughs> and it's about 600 times sweeter than sugar. It's safe in 23 packets or less. Um, and I want to bring this up because a really big thing that I see is that people will buy like sucralose or um, stevia even, and they'll bake with it and they'll 
put the same amount of the granulated Splenda or Stevia product in the baked good as they would sugar. And like, that's so much more than 23 packets per day, right? So then do you eat like five cookies out of the 12 that were there? And then we've had, I mean, so much of that product and it's kind of in an unsafe level. So something to consider. And again, this is found in a lot of diet products, but the research is mixed. Um, we have research basically associating Splenda to increase risk of glycemic control and cancer, um, again, mostly in rats. Um, and we have studies showing it is perfectly safe, but not a lot of long-term research. Um, so again, it's probably okay in moderation, but we definitely don't want to be having it all the time. And something to consider for a lot of these non-nutritive sweeteners that there's kind of been studies on, but a lot more of it is more application clinical observation. So like what I would see in practice is that if someone is consuming non-nutritive sweeteners, expecting sugar because it's sweet, um, basically they're tricking their brain. So it's more likely that you will eventually binge on the sugar later anyway, because you didn't actually give your brain that energy or carbohydrate or sugar that it's looking for. Um, our brains run off of glucose. That is something that they very much need every day to stay alive and function. So if you're constantly like, Hey brain, here's something sweet, but it's not glucose. You can't use it. You know, eventually your brain's going to get what it needs to keep you alive. So it could result in binging later. If you are basically grossly overusing non-nutritive sweeteners. Um, so it is something that, again, I usually kind of approach people from a, hey, what can we add to your life? And why are you doing the things that you're doing versus what can we take away? But if I do see large overuse or just high doses of non-nutritive sweeteners, it is something I'll say, hey, we need to kind of address that because it's just probably not good for you. It's probably okay if you have a little bit, but we don't need like a lot every single day. Next one that is, these two are a little bit less popular, um, but is Neotame, which is 7,000 to 13,000 times sweeter than sugar. So, oh my God, that's really sweet. Um, about 23 packets per day is generally recognized as safe. Um, and again, that, that would just be so sweet. Um, so very little of this is probably used in products. Um, and this is one that's found in a very popular brand that people bring up to me in the sports nutrition and body composi composition competition world, which is First Form. Um, Neotame is found in some of their products. So there have been some studies associating Neotame with cancer. Um, again, not in humans, not long-term correlation, not causation. And it is generally recognized as safe in those amounts. Another one is Adventame, which is 20,000 times sweeter than sugar. And the generally recognized safe dosage is, get this, 4,920 packets per day. Um, and there's only 37 studies to basically explore the safety of Adventame um, compared to all of these other ones that we've talked about typically have over 100. So while it seems to be very safe to have in reasonable doses because it's so much sweeter than sugar, we can have so much of it and no one's probably actually going to do this because it would be disgusting. Like it would just taste really bad. Um, there's not that many studies to back it up. So when I talk about a lot of these others, there's about a hundred studies for each, um, a little bit more for some, which still isn't like a ton in the grand scheme of things. It's not like a body of research. Um, but it's decent, you know, it's better than 37. So something to consider. 
The last one I want to address, um, which is technically a non-nutritive sweetener, um, it's a little bit closer to being like a carbohydrate type because it's not totally zero calorie, um, but is allulose, which is newer-ish. Um, and it is found in a couple sports nutrition products, such as UCAN products. And I'm seeing it a lot more in kind of the blood sugar control diabetes area in general. Um, something to note is that allulose has not been approved in the European Union or in Canada, um, because it has basically a limited history of use in food. Um, it is fine to use in the U S <laughs> so, there are some studies on allulose. Um, again, we don't have a ton of research yet. We have seen that in rats, um, allulose can prevent the onset and progression of type 2 diabetes for 60 weeks by maintaining blood glucose levels, reducing body weight, and controlling basically postprandial or after eating hyperglycemia while reducing hemoglobin A1C levels, which is a measurement of how your body's doing, processing carbohydrates. And um, there aren't a ton of studies that I know of yet that basically suggest there's like negative side effects of allulose. Um, the biggest thing is that we basically um, we basically don't have just a lot of studies on it yet. And it is something that I am seeing people tolerate pretty well um, when it comes to its addition in like sports nutrition products, um, allulose is absorbed by the small intestine and excreted in urine without being significantly metabolized, which is why it is relatively non-nutritive or low in calories. And there have, again, been some studies, but not a ton. So kind of in the same situation as other things could be um, a good one for glycemic control, but we just don't know enough about it yet. But when it comes to allulose, um, I do tend to see it be tolerated well by some individuals, especially individuals who have like maybe some issues with um, controlling their blood sugar. So that could be someone who does have diabetes or maybe has had bariatric um, surgery or other gastric surgeries, someone who is um, going through perimenopause or is menopausal, someone who has insulin resistance for um, other medical conditions like PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. So again, it's one that we don't know a ton about yet, but we're learning more about and might be okay. <laughs> so essentially, what are the takeaways from this episode? If you're still here, you have gone through the weeds. Good job. Hopefully you didn't get too lost in there. But the takeaways, moderation, moderation. Um, a lot of these are generally recognized as safe by the FDA. And while I don't want to say that the FDA is perfect and everything they say is perfect, <laughs> I will say that basically it's okay if you have some of these every day. If you notice that you're having adverse reactions to them, which could be like migraines, you're having GI distress, you're having a rash, you have more brain fog or fatigue, um, you're having a lot of GI distress like when you're running. Um, you know, if you're noticing some symptoms that you're just like, I don't have a great explanation for these. And you're also someone who consumes like a bunch of halo top and, um, diet bars, like one bars, or, um, you know, you're someone who, um, notices that it's in their toothpaste and in their protein powder, and they're using a lot of products, um, that have it, that have these artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners in them may not be a bad idea to try reducing your load. Again, you don't have to cut it out completely, but reducing your load might be helpful. I never want 
people to feel like they have to be perfect on this because I think the stress that can be created from trying to find the perfect everything is probably worse for us than having like a little bit of stevia. So that's something that I want to drive home. Um, so moderation, especially with like stevia and erythritol, um, just because there are some more studies on them, they do have, especially stevia, lower generally recognized as safe doses. And they're in a lot of products because they are quote unquote natural. So that is something to be aware of. And again, if you are someone who feels like you're consuming a lot of artificial or non-nutritive sweeteners, like I would be more curious as to why you're consuming so many, you know, is it in your daily foods and are you choosing like diet or low calorie foods? And why are you doing that? If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you need the opposite of that <laughs> um, because you are an active individual. Is it because it's in your sports nutrition supplements? Um, and maybe we could find better alternatives. And again, when we're talking about the research of these, does it apply to you? <laughs> Are you a sedentary, mostly male cardiovascular patient um, who is over 50? Are you a lab rat? Are you a Petri dish? Um, I know by the uh, data of who listens to this podcast that most of you are not that. <laughs> um, so again, probably okay to have in moderation, but if we're having a ton, like if you're having more than one to two doses a day, like where's it coming from and why? Um, do you truly like that food or are you trying to kind of cut as many calories as possible and it's not coming maybe from the best place and causing more issues? Um, so again, maybe we can consider some alternatives that incorporate actual carbohydrates, which we need a lot of as runners. If you do struggle with your blood sugar, um, I would recommend working with a dietitian like myself who has worked with patients with diabetes before and is knowledgeable from a sports nutrition perspective. Uh, we are kind of hard to find, but we are out there. You can definitely find certified diabetes educators who are awesome at working with people with diabetes and insulin resistance, but who may not know as much about sports nutrition and might treat you like everyone else when you are a runner who has this issue. Um, and not a sedentary person who has this issue. Those need to be treated slightly differently. And same thing, you can find plenty of sports dietitians who just may not know as much about that. Um, so if that's you and you're like, I use artificial sweeteners or stevia because I have like issues with processing high amounts of carbohydrates and I'm not really sure like what the happiest medium is for me um, and you wanna learn what that looks like and see how you're doing, yeah, I highly recommend working with someone like myself um, or someone else who specializes in sports nutrition and has um, experience with diabetes. So feel free to reach out to me. But hopefully this was helpful. <laughs> hopefully it didn't overwhelm you too much. Um, I definitely consume stevia, monk fruit, and artificial sweeteners from time to time. But again, I try to be wary of how much. I don't really like the taste of them that much. Um, so I prefer to have sugar or maple syrup or honey um, in most of my products if I can get it. But if the only thing I'm able to have after a workout is a core power shake or some protein powder that has stevia in it, I'm like, well, this is better than just not having anything. <laughs> so again, or if you're in the airport, and you're starving and you're like the option is like expired hard boiled eggs or you know like a protein shake or a power bar that has an artificial sweetener in it and i kind of want the bar instead of the expired boiled eggs like it, it it's fine <laughs> you're not going to die it's okay um so 
hopefully this draws some light on non-nutritive sweeteners. If you guys have been enjoying this podcast and this series, I would highly appreciate it if you shared the love. Maybe you shared you share this episode on your social media and you tag Hollyfield Nutrition. Maybe you tell friend or family member about it, refer people to the podcast if they have nutrition questions and you're like, I don't want to answer this, but I have a resource that can help you. Um, it's free information. So spread the love, leave a five-star rating and review. That helps the podcast so, so much. So if you haven't done that yet, I would highly recommend you do that. And I appreciate you guys so much. Happy running until next time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.